As, uh, as Roy said earlier, we have almost finished this uh, Deep Cries the Deep series. We have just one more week, week left after this evening. And I, I hope it has been helpful relearning and, and rediscovering this years old practice of, of praying the Psalms, of praying with them and, and from them. And tonight we come to a very brave Psalm, a very honest and courageous prayer. In, in which the writer uh, invites personal examination. He actually wants to be assessed. Uh, how many people here have had the experience of an appraisal at work? If you've had an appraisal at work, okay, lots of people. It's where your job or your role or your performance comes under intense scrutiny. Whenever your line manager or your boss sits down with you to sort of discuss, where's it at? Uh, how are you doing? What have been the challenges and the joys? What have been the successes and the failures? And some people love appraisals. Some dread them. Some people find them incredibly helpful. Others hate them with a passion. But whatever your opinion or experience, they now tend to be part and parcel of life in the workplace. They just go with the territory. Uh, another area of life that is now subject to consistent reviews are physical well-being. Regular checkups are strongly recommended because it makes so much sense to have your health tested. Just to suss out, how are you doing? Well, this evening we'll come to a prayer from someone who longs to be appraised. From someone who desires to be tested. Someone who wants a particular area of their life to come under close inspection. And in Psalm 26, it's it's page 556 in the the Bibles, in the pews, we encounter uh, a person who's willing to allow their spiritual health and well-being to be be evaluated, to sort of come under the microscope and be examined. And that's why I said it's a very brave prayer. It's a very brave prayer to offer, to invite personal examination but tonight I want to uh, invite each of us to consider praying it to consider actually grabbing hold of Psalm 26 and echoing these words it welcomes divine scrutiny if anybody has got a, a new King James version of the Bible that's how this psalm is headed a prayer for divine scrutiny so it's a prayer that invites God to probe To investigate. It's a prayer that invites God to consider, where am I at in my walk with you? And that's why it's such an important yet a brave prayer. Twelve years ago, uh, the band Delirious wrote a song based on this whole idea. uh, A song called Investigate. And I, I have quoted these lyrics before. Investigate my life and make me clean. Shine upon the darkest place in me. To you, maybe not to everybody else, but to God, our life is an open book. So turn the page and take a look. Investigate. I can't wait. Excavate. And so just before we we read Psalm 26, I want to suggest that we make a choice. I'm going to give you just the opportunity to make a choice. Are we 
prepared and willing to let God dig deep into our hearts and minds this evening. Because that is a choice to make, as to whether you allow God to probe and to examine and to put your spiritual well-being and health kind of under a divine microscope. So I'm just going to give you a moment to just in the quietness ask God or give God permission to probe. The way this prayer is, is structured, we find David, who is the person who originally wrote it and prayed it, we, we find him asking God to test his spirituality, to test his, his spiritual health. But meshed into the prayer, and, and this is partly what's so challenging about it, is this discovery of what David has done and what he is currently doing in order that God, having investigated him, might give him a clean bill of health. Might actually hand him a set of positive results. And we're going to come back to that a little later. Exactly what it is that David has done or is doing as part of this whole process. But let's actually stand together as we read this prayer. Vindicate me, Lord. For I have led a blameless life, or, depending on your translation, I have walked in my integrity, or I have acted with integrity. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love, and I have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers. I refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence. And go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners. My life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Redeem me. And be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In the great congregation, I will praise the Lord. Take a seat. I've already said this, but you'll notice at the top of it that it says it's a psalm of David. But after you read verse 1, some people might want to question that. You might want to even take exception, having read those lines. I have led a blameless life. 
I have acted with integrity. I have not faltered. Really? Really? Is this the same David who gave in to the deadly sin of lust? The same David who committed adultery? The same David who arranged for someone to be killed in order to cover up his own mess? Well, the answer is, yes, it is. And so based on the tension of that verse and the fact that it is David who seems to have written it, some people are pretty convinced that he must have prayed it long before all of that happened. Otherwise, surely there are grounds to query the very thing that David's claiming, integrity. How can you say you've lived a blameless life when we know so much about you? And that is a a fair point, a valid point. It's caused a lot of people a number of concerns. But it's not necessarily a problem. If you have a Bible open, turn to 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4. And in this incident, God is speaking to Solomon, who's David's son. And God says this to Solomon. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as your father David did, I will establish your throne over Israel forever. So hang on a moment. God knew what David did with Bathsheba. God knew what David did to Uriah. And yet he tells Solomon, David's son, that his father walked with integrity. You see, whenever David or we talk about a blameless life or a life of integrity in this context, the one thing we're not talking about is perfection. We're not talking about someone who never made mistakes or never gave in to temptation or never lost his way. No one with integrity could ever say, I've never made a mistake. I've never given in to temptation. Nobody with integrity could say that. And so the issue here is to do with mindset and heart desire. David had messed up. But he recognized that. He realized that. He confronted that. He confessed his sin and his mess-ups to God. And he received divine forgiveness. David's heart and mind, in other words, was set on doing the right thing. But he didn't always do it. But his heart And his mind were set on it. And the reason that we know his heart and his mind were set on it is because as God said to Saul via Samuel and then quoted by Paul in the New Testament book of Acts, David was a man whose heart was like a heart of God. A man after God's own heart. So we know from that that this was someone whose heart and mind was set on doing the right thing. Didn't always do it. He's not perfect. He did get it wrong. But his explicit desire was obedience and holiness. And therefore, whether Psalm 26 comes before or after the Bathsheba and Uriah incident isn't such a big deal. Because if it was before, then it reveals that those who pursue integrity don't always get it right. In fact, they at times get it badly wrong. If it comes after 
this shocking incident, it clearly reveals that failure isn't final. And whenever we confess our sin and find forgiveness, then an ongoing blameless life, a life of integrity, is still possible. It is still the way forward. It is or should be our express intention. But as we tease this out a little more, let me stick with the issue of integrity. It's not perfection, okay? But what is it? What is integrity? How would you define it? Give me some immediate responses, reaction to the idea of integrity. What it implies. Sorry? Being wise, okay. Anything else? Consistent. Thank you. In stereo, yeah, honest. Anyone else? Transparent. Thanks, Paul. No one for keeping your word. Anything else? Genuine. Genuine. And in light of of all that we have just said there, it's not hard to see why integrity is valued at so many different levels. Within the world of business, for example, integrity is a much sought-after character trait whenever someone's employing a person. Warren uh, Buffett, American business magnate, consistently ranked amongst the world's wealthiest people, widely considered the most successful inventor of the 20th century, said this about integrity. In looking for people to hire, you look for three qualities. Integrity, intelligence, and energy. And if you don't have the first, the other two will kill you. It's brilliant. Integrity is defined, here's sort of like a dictionary definition, although it grabs so much of what you've said. Soundness of moral principle and character. Complete honesty and uprightness with no masking of intent. What therefore is the opposite of integrity? Wearing a hypocrisy. Thank you, Dorothy. Where masks are worn where play-acting becomes the norm, where we pretend to be someone or something we're not, where deception is the order of the day. Integrity, on the other hand, refers to this idea of consistency. Consistency of words and then actions. Where you practice what you preach. Where what you say and what you do matches up, they connect, they don't leave everyone around you scratching their heads. Integrity is about being openly honest where there are no false claims in word and then in life. And therefore, people of integrity are people who can be trusted. People of integrity gain a reputation for being trustworthy. Which is why it is such an attractive and appealing appealing quality. Because who do we trust today? Who can you trust today? But from a biblical perspective, a Christian perspective, although everything I've just said and we have just said about integrity is true and right, it probably goes a little further. It goes just a bit deeper. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about having the right heart. And then it's about allowing the person we are on the inside match the person we are on the outside. And that's why in the Hebrew language, as I understand it, integrity refers to completeness, to wholeness. It's where God and and the things of God, whether that's the teaching of Scripture or the example of Jesus, it's where those things influence and impact every area of our lives, our home life, 
our work life, our leisure time, our recreation, our relationships, our finances. It's where we're not one thing at church and then a different thing the rest of the week. It's about consistency 24-7, completeness, wholeness. I remember uh, someone showing me a very powerful illustration to help explain an integrity that I've never forgotten. I think I have shared this before on a different occasion. But if you, if you think of a stick of rock, the ones you kind of buy on your holidays, although no one ever does anymore because we finally realized how bad they really are for your teeth. But often those sticks of rock have got words written in them, and the word that's often written in them is, is the place name where you have visited on your holidays. But if you were to snap that piece of rock at any point, you should still be able to read Blackpool. No matter where you break into it, you should still be able to read Blackpool. And that is so like integrity, because integrity needs to be written into our lives, written into our hearts. But here's the point, no matter where you break into my life, you should still be able to read integrity. Not just breaking into my life here on a Sunday evening as I stand in front of church attempting to share God's word. But you break into my life tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, whenever I'm surfing channels, whenever I'm looking at websites, whenever I'm playing a game of football. You break into my life at those points. Do you still read integrity? Do people still read integrity in your life tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock? That's what, that's what it's all about, consistency. 24-7, completeness, wholeness. Someone has said that the best way to discern whether or not you're making progress in this is to ask yourself, how do I live when no one's looking? Sometimes easy to look like a person of integrity when people are watching But do I live my private life with the same level of consistency as I live my public life? Or to put it slightly differently, integrity is doing the right thing even if no one's looking. And when it comes to integrity of heart, God is always looking and longing to find this idea of completeness and wholeness. For David, this mattered. And therefore he says in that opening verse, I have walked in my integrity. It's quite a claim to make. But if that is your heart's desire, if that is your intention to do the right thing, to have the right heart, then you can pray that. You can say that. I have walked in my integrity. This is what I'm about. This is my desire. And as a result of that, you can then go on in verse 2 to say to God, so in light of that, God, examine me. Test me. Probe me. Try me. David has nothing to fear because he has a heart after God. And I suppose that, that's the challenge I find. As I look at a psalm like this, do I have a heart after God? Because if I do, then I'm going to willingly just say to God, God, examine me, test me, probe me, investigate. And I've spent quite a bit of time just on that <laughs> opening verse. Uh, But I just wanted to attempt to deal with any of the misunderstanding that does exist about about who wrote it and when they wrote it, but also to stress the value of integrity in the Christian life. But as you read on, and as you listen to the rest of David's prayer, as I said earlier, you discover other choices he's made. 
A number of other things that he has done or he is doing in order to foster and to guard his integrity. And because they are in place or because he's putting these things in place, as I say, you discover why David is absolutely okay with God placing his life under a microscope. And for me, there are six things. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go on and preach a six-point sermon at this point. But for me, there are six things that come through in the next few verses that I, that I want us to consider because they provide a kind of framework that you can hold up and alongside your own life. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time in each of them, but I just want to draw attention to them and then encourage you to reflect, well, where am I at on these six things? Because this is where David was at. And as a result of this is where David this is where he was at, he was able to say, okay, God, test me. The first is located in that opening verse, where David affirms his trust in God. You see, whatever else is going on in David's life, and clearly there was something major happening, and I haven't drawn attention to this, because you'll notice at the very start of the prayer, he says, vindicate me, Lord. Declare me innocent. So something major was happening in David's life. But despite his circumstances, David recognizes and accepts that God remains trustworthy. He affirms that, God, you are my only source of security and hope. And although he might be tempted to place his trust elsewhere, as we all are, although he might be tempted to turn in all sorts of other directions to seek help, to seek answers, to seek a way out, he says, do you know something? Let me just say right up front, I'm trusting you, God. I suppose the question is, am I? Am I trusting God with every area of my life and in every area of my life? Or am I trying to hang on to certain things? Am I placing my trust elsewhere? For David, his trust was in God. Second thing to note is his constant focus on God's unfailing love. I'm always aware, he says in verse 3, of your unfailing love. Or again, depending on your translation, it says something about my eyes are constantly fixed on your loving kindness. In other words, I'm keeping your love at the forefront of my mind because I never want to lose sight of it. I may not always feel it. But I want to remain constantly aware of its reality. And in some ways, that, that helps you to understand David's desire to feel the heat of God's scrutiny. Because he knows God's not going to come down on me like a ton of bricks. God's not going to rub my face in my mistakes or my failures. But God's nature is love. He wants what's best for me. Any discipline that I might need to face up to as a a result of this probing and investigating is motivated by love and because God knows what is best for me. So I am going to stay focused on God's unfailing love. How do you do that? How do we do that? Well, one of the ways that we refocus and refocus and refocus and keep love God's love at the forefront of our minds is via what we've just done. It's one of the key reasons for me for it. Because here's how we recall connecting this into our Sunday morning series based on 1 John. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his son as a sacrifice for our sins. God showed us how much he loved us. And every time we eat, and every time we drink, and every time we say thank you, We stay focused on God's unfailing love. And that's why I love doing it here every single week. Because I lose focus. So many other things distract. So many other things cloud my field of vision. 
But I must admit, every time I come back to this and I really recall and remember what it's about, it causes me to retune my vision. The third thing David's doing, second half of verse 3, is I have walked in your truth, is, is how the New Living Translation puts it, or I have lived according to your truth. And so here you find David's commitment to obedience. His intention to live God's ways and allow God's ways to dictate the choices he makes and the decisions he takes. And for us, that that remains an essential discipleship requirement. There are so many alternative paths to walk. So many different ways that people want us to buy into. But there's only one that makes eternal sense. And that's to live in submission to your Creator. And God has said, I, or David has said, I have walked in your truth. So here we find David inviting investigation, but also note that he's trusting in God, he's focused on God's unfailing love, he's committed to obedience. The next three things. The fourth thing he says is, listen, I am concerned about the company I keep. And David comes back to a couple of issues in verse 4 that he's already raised. He's talked about the importance of integrity and truth. Look at verse 4. David says, Do you know something? I'm not going to spend any time with those who are liars or those who are deceitful. And I'm not going to associate with hypocrites. And those might be strong words, but what David is saying is, listen, I'm clear about the potential negative influence of others on my life. David, it's not going to buy into the, well, look, everybody else is doing it line. He's, he's going to be so wise about the people he spends time with. And I know David wouldn't have uh, come across this phrase, but, but he would have echoed it, phrase of Paul's in his letter to Corinthians. Bad company corrupts good character. And as Christians, it, it's important not to isolate ourselves and live in some bubble. But in terms of the people who influence us, it's so important that we avoid corruption. Peer pressure is a reality at whatever stage of life you're at. It's not just a young people's issue. David develops this whole idea even further by saying, listen, I'm not going to surround myself with those who do evil. I'm not going to bed down with the wicked. Company matters. David knows that friendship leaves its mark, and so he is intentional about the company he keeps. Fifth and sixth thing, nearly done. Concerns hand washing and vocal praise. Look at verses 6 and 7. David turns up to worship with clean, innocent hands, he says. Not dirty, guilty hands. So this is about confession. David's prepared his heart for worship. He's dealt with the sin that so easily entangles. He's confronted any mess that there is in his life. He's sorted it out. And then having embraced God's forgiveness, he sings. And he declares the wonders of Almighty God. And again, it's just a brilliant model to adopt. Where we practice the spiritual discipline, the holy habit of confession, regular hand washing. Which many of us did, as Roy led us in that prayer of confession. Many of us did it again. Washed our hands. Said, God, I'm sorry for the sin of my life. I wash my hands before you. I confess my sin." So many people don't kind of come to a place of worship or the church because they're racked with a guilty conscience. And yet it doesn't have to be like that because if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he will cleanse. And David has been there and he's done that and therefore he lets his vocal cords rip and he sings his heart out. 
And no wonder he says in verse 8, I love to be in the place where God's presence dwells. Or to quote another psalm that we've looked at as part of this series, better is one day in your courts, one day in your presence, than a thousand elsewhere. And so as David invites testing, as he asks God for an honest appraisal, as he places his life under a divine microscope, as he holds it up against a heavenly stethoscope, he does that willingly because he has done and he is doing these six things. He's trusting in God. He's focusing on God's unfailing love. He's walking in obedience to God's truth. He's avoiding bad company. He's confessing his sins and he's declaring God's praise. And the question is, just as I finish, what about us? Are we able to echo David's prayer for intense scrutiny? Through this prayer, we are confronted with the reality that we bear responsibility for our moral and religious integrity. And we are challenged via Psalm 26 to extend to God an invitation to test that integrity. Is that an invitation I'm willing to extend to God this evening? And if it is, then I want to suggest that we need to consider these six things that we are able to join with David in the rest of his prayer and I realise there's a lot in that even the process but what about and here's just a practical suggestion what about for the next six days before we meet again that you take one of those a day that tomorrow you reflect on trust on your trust in God Tuesday you reflect on God's unfailing love Wednesday your obedience. Thursday, the company you keep. Friday, confession. Saturday, praise. Then come back next Sunday and allow God to probe a bit deeper. As we close tonight, I'm going to ask Ruth to come and just sing a song for us. A song uh, that talks about inviting God to search us and so just before we kind of break up and begin to chat and go and pick up kids from Clay and all of that, let me just invite you to take these moments to just invite God to go on testing and investigating and probing. Thanks, Ray.